assemble the forms for veterans' benefits, he never files them. I ask him if he wants me to come up to Massachusetts and help him get organized, and, to my relief, he says no. Yet when things fall apart, I am the one he turns to. For years I had closed my eyes. A respite. No cries of distress. No calls from creditors. Dared I hope that I might finally be free of him? But no, of course not. The eviction notice is followed by more warnings. His electricity, his phone, his gas are about to be cut off. He's been living in a fire trap, a health hazard, and an eyesore. And unless I come to the rescue, his next address, he, the perfect gentleman, will be a city shelter. How can a man so vigorous he can still win state shooting championships in his 80s fail to open his own mail? How can someone who so stubbornly dotes on his independence put himself in such jeopardy? Furious, I take my six-year-old daughter Amy, leaving my husband and son behind, and drive from New York City to my father's home in the little town of Milford, which lies 40 miles northwest of Boston. My father opens the door and gives us each a bear hug. Even though it's early afternoon, he's wearing a blue terry cloth bathrobe so full of holes it looks like it's been sprayed with a machine gun. Stubble sprouts from his chin. His fine brown hair sticks up at odd angles. I have to admit that even with his knobby knees peeking out from below his robe, there's something fortifying about my father. He's 6'3 and big-boned, with a big forehead and big chin, his moist blue eyes magnified by his glasses, and a Roman nose gone bumpy with age. His half-moon smile, topped by a frog-like upper lip, lights up his face and has inspired unbecoming behavior in even the most durable of women. "'Oh, you don't know how good it is to see you,' he says, then he ushers us into the kitchen with, under the circumstances, comical gallantry. I push past him into the next room, following a narrow path that winds from the study to the living room. It is essentially a canyon bordered by teetering towers of cardboard cartons. My heart sinks as I look at the piles of newspapers and flyers covering every available surface— save for a small space on the sofa reserved for his recalcitrant bottom. He puts his hands on my shoulders and quickly guides me back into the kitchen, clearing a stack of styrofoam takeout containers from a kitchen chair. "'Won't you sit down?' he asks, pushing the chair right to the back of my knees. I had forgotten about this, his chivalrous persona. Even now he hasn't lost it. He's always ceremoniously opened doors for women and rapidly surrendered his seat to them. Please and thank you fall frequently from his lips. It occurs to me now that these flourishes are a kind of salve, for he is exceedingly grateful for the attention they bring. Please, he entreats me, let me offer you something to drink. No thanks, Dad, I say. What could we expect to find in his refrigerator? Sour milk? Rancid orange juice? Mom! Amy yells, holding out an open box of Wheaties she's found on the kitchen counter. They're moving! We proceed to unearth a half-dozen other open boxes of cereal, all crawling with weevils. On top of the cartons, 
there's a parade of plastic bags. Out of curiosity, I open them. The first bag, flashlight, shaving cream, Tums. The second bag, flashlight, shaving cream, Tums. The third bag, flashlight, shaving cream, Tums. I'm in a movie that keeps rewinding. Dad, I sigh, turning to the man who stands there smiling obliviously. What have you done here? I'm about to cry. Why do you do this? Just look. Look at this mess. His neck comes out like a turtle's. He peers right, peers left, peers up. Whatever do you mean? He replies. My father was born, Thomas Edward Franks, in Champaign, Illinois, an only child in a prosperous but unassuming family.